City Lights is a community of faith in Jesus, seeking to equip people to exalt him and extend his kingdom. This message is from our study through the Gospel of John called Believe, Jesus Changes Everything. If you are encouraged and challenged by this message, please share it with someone, post it on social media, or let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes podcast. I invite you to open up to John chapter 13. We are in the middle of a series called Believe. And uh, the tagline of that is that Jesus changes everything. John chapter 13 through 17 is a paramount, uh, as Sydney Ann, to use her terminology just now, a paramount invitation to us. Uh, John chapter 13 through 17 reveals an intimacy um, that we've, we we don't really get to see in almost any other part of the Bible um, uh, a revelation that we don't get to get to feel and touch in any other way um, in the Bible. Between John 1 and John 12, the words love are only used 12 times, but between John 13 and, and 17, the word love is used 54 times. The word father is also used 45 times. There is a, there's an understanding, a revelation, a, um, an experience with those that believe in Jesus to to fall in line with the overall arching uh, theme of our series this morning of believe that for those that believe, we don't even believe and just have faith, but we draw near that we might experience the love of the Father, the one that created us, that we would be restored to a family, not just of a belief system, but to be known and, and to know, not just up here, but in here, what it's like to be close, to, to touch, to be close to God, to draw near to him. And that's what John 13 through 17 is about. John 13 through 17 is almost like a funeral for Jesus because Jesus was a perfect man. He was, he was killed like a criminal, though, and, and so he never really had a proper burial. His, his actual goodbyes, his sending, his final notes, his final commendations are in John chapter 13 through 17. They were over the Passover feast, the most famous supper, really, in all of history. Uh, he gathered 12 of his closest friends and prepared an upper room to spend time with them to say goodbye. He was saying goodbye. They didn't know that he was saying goodbye because they couldn't understand, but he was. He was saying goodbye. And if you look back in the rearview mirror to look at that engagement, it was, it was like a funeral. But not only a funeral for Jesus, the upper room was the beginning of something new and also the death of not only Jesus, the person, but the death of an era and the death of an old covenant. The, the, the upper room was not only a celebration of Jesus' life and a commemoration of Jesus' death, but it was also a commemoration of the death of something called the law, which I'll speak about in a few moments. But the law was, in the past, to the Jews, the only vehicle that people could get to God with by following the law. And so Jesus brings uh, the disciples and really an audience of this room up to the, up to the upper room to, to preach, to forecast, to prepare what it's like to live within the living room of God outside of what I want to call the courtroom of God, to live out from under the law and into intimacy, to draw near to God and not just follow his rules that we might find favor in his hand, protection and provision, but we might draw near to his heart. The upper room was a funeral, not just for Jesus, but also for the law. And it was also an introduction. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because this is for future teachings, but it was an introduction to the Holy Spirit because intimacy with, the, with God is impossible without the Holy Spirit. On Calvary, when Jesus died, he didn't just absolve us of our sins and forgive us, but he gave us, he granted us the Holy Spirit, the very spirit that would put the law in our heart and allow us to be even more righteous than the Pharisees. When Jesus preached that we would be more righteous than the Pharisees, he actually meant it. It's by way of the power of the Holy Spirit. And just as a side note, to help us 
begin to even think about the paradigm with which Jesus looked at his friends and his family. We know, for example, that one day we will go off and, and send our kids into the world as parents. Uh, and, and we know that not every relationship that we have, the relationships that you have, uh, will last forever. And, and every hello kind of has a goodbye. In the kingdom, especially every hello kind of has this goodbye moment to it, at least on earth. And, and the question that, one of the questions that I think is really profound and interesting is that when Jesus sits down with his disciples, when he, when he says goodbye, it's not like us parents, when we go and leave the kids alone at the house, like the rules are up on the fridge and I hope that you follow them all and don't get to any trouble and don't have any parties in your house. He doesn't leave them with a list of laws. He leaves them with his presence. He leaves them with the Holy Spirit. He leaves them with the, the single command of, of loving one another. So this is the passage that we're in this morning, chapter 13, verse 31 through 35, it says. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man to be glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Jesus was speaking in the direct kind of um, following of Judas that we talked about last week, his betrayer at the table exited the room and closed the door off into the night, it says at the end of the last passage. And the disciples, I would imagine, as you would probably feel, are pretty upside down. And I love the love of God. He, he doesn't allow any vacuum that he doesn't speak into. There's a myth. There's a lot of myths, and Chris will talk about these a lot, of things that we think come from the Bible, but they don't. One of these myths is I've heard people say that Jesus is like a teacher, and the teacher is always silent when he gives the test. But the truth is, is that I never see that in the scriptures. Any question that Jesus ever asks, he always answered. And Jesus speaks into this silence, and he begins to talk about what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says, I'm going to be glorified in this moment. This is such a profound statement because nobody could imagine that ultimately Judas leaving that room and probably betraying him, ultimately would betray him for 30 pieces of silver leading to his imminent death. Nobody would imagine a death that would lead to glory, but Jesus is transforming what it looks like to live out from under the law and into the living room of God by explaining that glory in the, in the intimacy of God looks more like death than it does like being lifted up. Little children, he says, Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me just as I have said to the Jews. So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where am I going? You cannot, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, you will not lay your life down for me. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will crow till you have denied me three times. When I started teaching, uh, the way that I imagined teaching was nothing like the actual teaching itself, the profession of teaching itself. I think I probably gathered my assumptions about teaching in the public school system, I used to teach high school U.S. history. I know it's your favorite class, George Washington, Bacon's Rebellion, all that stuff. I loved history, but the kids never loved history as much as David Malpass loves history, as much as I loved history. It was difficult to, to kind of uh, extend and generate the type of passion that I used to have for history because at the end of the day, his, history, it's, it's, it's not every kid's favorite subject. I used to got my, get my assumptions, I think, a lot of times 
uh, of teaching, just like any other professions from television, you know? I, I, I in a lot of ways, thought in entering teaching, it was going to be like Michelle Pfeiffer on Dangerous Minds or Mr. Belding and Saved by the Bell or, you know, one of these, these teachers that hang out in this random teacher lounge that doesn't actually exist. I'll let you know, sipping coffee that's really great, which it's never because it's always instant coffee with all this extra time hanging out in, in the hallway. What they don't tell you in the movies and television is that you're, you're not just teaching like 25 kids at a time that are your friends. You're teaching like 150 kids that all have these different ways of life and ways of learning and coming in from these different walks of life, and you never really know where they come from or where they're going. And, and, the, and the practice of teaching is, is a lot less relational than you kind of sign up for. I'm a relational guy, and when I, I got into teaching, I, I really genuinely, if I had to get to the heart of things, I just thought to myself, I really love kids, and I want to be with kids and spend time with them and share life with them. But when you get into teaching, Austin Phillips is, is nodding his head because he's married to a teacher. You know that... Uh, relationships save time, and in teaching, that's about the commodity you have the least, like, resource of, right? And the EOC scores, and the IEPs, and the, and the final exams, and the college tuitions, and the pressures of scholarship, and the, and the, and the need to kind of get to the bottom line, the, the inundation of the business world makes its way into education world, and, and the classrooms are so much more ruled by system than they ever get to be run by relationship. You know what I mean? Like, like the teachers that survive have to have a system, you can't go into teaching just expecting to be friends. You've got to have a system. I had folders with numbers on them so that every Monday I could keep the kids, you know, motivated because they're not really motivated by history. They're only motivated by grades, and if they ain't grading it, they ain't doing it kind of thing. So you've got to put the numbers on the pages and order them in the process. Otherwise, you'll run out of time and put them in the folders and hand them out. And, and by the end of the time, I, I found myself really skilled at, at running systems but not so sure that I was able, even at the end of my tenure, to develop, you know, kind of solid relationships with each and every person. But the process of creating system and laws and rules, it's, it's part of relationships for sure. But systems and laws and rules, they, they can be friends to relationships, but they also can be enemies because we use systems and laws and rules to replace trust and intimacy. Like when I sit down with you and I buy your house, the reason why there's a lawyer present and a contract there is because I don't trust you, so I have to trust that contract. And if you don't own up to your side of that bargain, I trust the law, not you, to fulfill your end of the bargain. Am I right? And, and when I start off a business and it's me and Andre Griner and we're excited about some dot-com thing that we're going to get started, we don't have to have a lot of contracts because we're just excited about what we're excited about and we do what we're, do, we're doing and we dream about the next step and we just take the next thing as it comes. But if that business were to grow to 10 and 20 and 100 and 1,000, you would, you would assume that what was once generated by trust and companionship now has to be run and ruled by law and contract. Because... Where there is no trust, there has to be contract. And that's why it's so alienating in the midst of a divorce when the lawyers enter the conversation and the things that used to get talked about, like who gets the kids and who gets the money and how we're going to treat each other, that used to be talked about through the lens of trust are now being talked about through the lens of law. And, and what was normal and natural going frontwards feels so abnormal and alienating going backwards because we were never meant to relate to each other or to God based on law. We were meant to relate to God based on love, based on trust, and based, based on intimacy. And you know what it feels like to be in a world that's run by rules over relationship, right? It's when you work for that company and you give your blood, sweat, and tears and your extra hours on the weekend and your extra family time over, over the summers and you're always on your phone and you're always on your email and then you come in the wrong day with the wrong time with the wrong boss and they ding you because of your ID card. Like, ah, you forgot to put your name on the TPS report. Office space, right? 
It doesn't feel natural. We shouldn't be known by our name tags. We should be known by our names, right? And that's what, the, that's what the kids feel like in the classroom. We know what it's like to be under the law in our living rooms, in our families, by a father maybe that we don't know that well. And although they protect and they provide for us, we don't know their heart. And the only way that we can maybe, maybe try and propagate some type of relationship or some type of contract or peace is that the contract becomes the grades, and I give you my grades to earn your trust. And the, and the grades become the, the currency by which I earn your favor. Or it's the way that we relate to God, and we close our eyes, and we, and we give a, a, a prayer. We, we kind of hurl up a prayer, and we don't really know where it hits him. And we hope that somehow it pleases him, but we're not really sure how he feels about us. And, and maybe we could see a breakthrough happen in our life of something that he does on our behalf with his hand, but we have no idea what he feels about in his heart. And, we, and in, in a lot of ways, we kind of wonder if he's—we know he has to love us, but we don't really know if he likes us or if he's disappointed of us or if, or if he approves of us. So one of my first sermons— that I ever gave back in like 2010 was on the book of Leviticus. We were doing a thing called Walk Through the Bible, and we did about a, a book a week, and they threw me, the first youth pastor guy, to preach his first sermon, this book of Leviticus, which if you've never read it before, it is a doozy, right? Leviticus is essentially, it literally means Levites, which means to be consecrated. It was the way that people could get to God. Because of Genesis 3, there was a separation between God and man, and God in his grace and his mercy gave a law with the hope that, that people would follow the law that they might draw near to him. And it's really interesting because if you read Leviticus, there's crazy laws in there. Like there's things about your house and how much mildew should be built up in the house before you should knock it down. And things like how we should treat women when they're menstruating. And crazy things like this. This is some good advice for you wives out there. Apparently, according to the law of God, if your husband were to get in a fight with another man in a public area, no matter what you do or what you're thinking, don't go up to your husband's opponent and kick them in the crotch because that's against the law, according to Leviticus. Literally, every T is, is crossed, every I is dotted in the book of Leviticus. It is a tedious, inundating, altogether 613 laws, including Moses' Ten Commandments, that if we were to follow these laws, theoretically, we would be able to draw near to the, to the heart of God. And actually, back then, that was grace to the Israelites. Like, in Psalm 119, David who was one of the greatest worship leaders of all time, wrote a psalm that basically says, I love your law. Talk about something that a kid would never say or a person would never say. I love your law. Why? Because when we judge the law based on our progressive viewpoints backwards in conservatism, they will always seem conservative. But you have to understand the law at that point was incredibly progressive. All the other people groups and all the other nations and tribes never knew what God was thinking. They never were able to hear their creator's voice. And so in that distance, in that gap, in that, in that space between earth and heaven, people always assumed suspicion and always assumed that the gods were angry. And that's why it was always so prevalent that people would sacrifice even children in order to earn favor with God. But it's God in his great mercy that he gave the law. It's in his love that he gave the law, that he afforded people to sacrifice sheep, that the word sacrifice actually means to draw near. The law was grace. The law was given in love. But even in that, though the law was intended in love to draw near people, it never afforded the license or the opportunity for people to draw close. It would, the law would, would leave them around. They would host the law in the, in the Ark of the Covenant and travel in the wilderness by a cloud of, of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they knew that God's hand was with them, but they had no idea what was going on in God's heart. And if they traveled through the wilderness, the mystery of God would travel ahead of them. 
But if they were to get too close to the Ark of the Covenant, in one case, a man named Uzziah in the Old Testament accidentally tripped and touched just the side of the Ark of the Covenant and drew close to the Ark of the Covenant. Just as a man would try and touch the sun, instantly he died. The law was able to draw the Israelites near him, near his presence, but not to draw close to his presence. He was too righteous, a, a holy God in the midst of an unholy people, not that he didn't love, not that he didn't want to draw near. He, his, the entire purpose of the law was drawn near. It wasn't his fault or his lacking that the law was incompetent to cause intimacy between man and God. It was that man was sinful and that sinful man in the presence of a holy God would only expect to die. It was too holy. In fact, some of you guys have heard this before, that every year an offering of Aaron was given, and if that priest that would go in and make a sacrifice on the behalf of the people for the yearly uh, absolution of sin, if that priest were not have handled his business correctly before he entered into it, he would strap a, 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 some bells around his ankle along with a string because they knew that if he had not handled his business correctly and he entered into what's called the Holy of Holies, a wall that would separate man and God, if he were to go into that place not having been consecrated according to the 613 laws, he would drop dead in an instant and we would hear the bells of his ankles that we have the string to pull him out. So the law was competent, it was given in love, and it meant so that God's people could draw near to him, but it never allowed people to draw close. And this is why Jesus matters so much. Not just because he's a model, but because he's a substitution. Because God lived the perfect life, not just for himself to prove that you could do it. God lived the perfect life and is perfectly generous so he could give you his righteousness. God was perfect in every way. Jesus was perfect in every way. He was never late. He was always on time. He never committed any sins of omission, no sins of commission. He's always perfect. God's perfect theology, the word becoming flesh right here, but not just so he could demonstrate, but so he could substitute and propitiate the righteousness for us. And as he died, speaking of funeral services, as he died like a rich man with a great inheritance, he was both so equally righteous and so equally generous that when he died, the curtain that I described that divided man and God, between man and God, that, that allowed for us to draw near but never to draw close, that curtain instantly died because his righteousness was so prolific and profound, changing the nature that man would approach God forever and ever. Jesus did what the law could not do. And so this is what it says in Romans chapter 7. Paul sums it up well, and so I just want to uh, read it to us. It'll be on the screen as well. He describes that moment this way. Paul, an apostle who writes to a church in Rome, he says, Or do you know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Jesus in the upper room was not only pronouncing the death of himself and predicting the death of himself, but also predicting the death of the very law that the Jews had learned to follow so closely. The law is binding only as long as a person lives. For a married woman is bound to the law, uh, bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may, uh, so that you may belong to another. Intimacy with God, not only, but intimacy with one another as well. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. When Jesus said we could be more righteous than the Pharisees, he actually meant it. That the spirit of God hosted inside of people, the very same spirit that rose Christ from the dead, could live inside a person. And the person would become the tabernacle. And there would be no space and no line and no distance and, uninter and interrupted intimacy between God and man. 
that they could draw close, but also draw near. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, that not in the old way of the written code. One time the, the, the Pharisees came and they asked Jesus, according to the law, they said, if a woman were to be married to a man and the man died, the woman would marry the second brother. And so the, the uh, kind of hypothetical situation they proposed to Jesus is what happens if brother number two dies and she marries brother number three and three dies to marry four and four dies and she marries five. And what happens if she goes all the way down the line and marries all seven of the brothers? Who is she married to when she gets to heaven? And do you remember what Jesus says? Jesus says she's not actually married to any of those people because marriage doesn't exist in heaven. Because marriage to one person to another suggests that I'm going to be closer to this person than the next person. The reality is in heaven, there's no space between any people, so we're not closer to one person than we are to another. There's only uninterrupted intimacy in heaven. It's hard for us to imagine. But in heaven, there are no laws. In heaven, there are no contracts. Because there's no space in heaven for fear. There's only room for intimacy. There's only room for trust. There's only room for closeness. And so the law, though it was a temporary friend, was ultimately on a timetable. And it was designed to propagate relationship but never fulfill it. Ultimately, that law, Paul would go on to say, was only to prove the need for Jesus, that Jesus might become the law for us. His favorite math problem being 613 minus 613 so that I can give you one. Jesus became sin on our behalf, that he would die, that we become the very righteousness of God. He became the law and died on the law, cursed the law, ending the law, so that we might not be ruled by laws, but only ruled by love. So he invites these disciples, and he, he brings them into this room. And you can already kind of feel, right, in the last couple of weeks, the kind of, the kind of insecurity, the kind of, unassurance of the disciples not really knowing how to deal with my rabbi washing my feet. He says statements in here like, you're not going to follow me where I'm going. What do you mean I'm not going to follow you where I'm going? The only thing that matters is the truth of God, and rabbis carry the truth of God, so wherever you go, I'm going. What do you mean I can't follow you? What do you mean by that? What do you mean the Holy Spirit? What do you mean we're going to be one? How can an unholy God who can't touch the Ark of the Covenant without dying be one with, his, with, a, with a holy God? What do you mean? How is this possible? But we should expect that, right? If you were to go from one country to another, there would be a culture shock. There would be a bit of a, it's like when you get that fish and you can't just drop them in the water and they just die because the temperature is not the same. The water that they came from is not the, the same as the water that they've just gotten dropped into. And so there has to be an acclimation period, a transition period. A time when, when you're explaining and teaching. God doesn't speak in silence. He doesn't teach in silence. In my opinion, he speaks into every silent void because God is always speaking. He's a good father that we can hear his voice. And so he begins to speak to them. And you can see the kind of almost like being reborn, like having to learn how to walk again. What do you mean there's not 613 laws? What do you mean I'm supposed to love my enemy? What do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? There's, there's this, there's this acclimation period that has to take place, which, is, which is kind of creates this unsettledness in the disciples. So, as I mentioned earlier, Judas had just walked out to, to, to set the pace of the scene. And he begins to say some things. He begins to redefine things in this new covenant, this new era that is absent of the law, the only thing that the Jews knew, the only thing the disciples knew. He begins to talk about and preach about this promised land that wasn't about milk and honey, but about love and 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 passion and, and, and seek 
and having secret place with God, this uninterrupted intimacy. He begins to talk about this, and, and in this new government, and underneath this new kingdom, and un, under this new covenant, there'd have to be a redefining of things. And you see it every step of the way. There's just this, it's like speaking a different language. He says, yeah, you see how that man Judas just walked out? You know he's going to have me killed, right? He says, guess what? That guy betraying me, leading to my death, it's not going to lead to my death. It's actually going to lead to my glory, not only my glory, but his, but also yours. That the new kingdom that I'm talking about is not about God in the Old Testament where his glory meant God lifting himself above men so they would see how distant he was from him. But this type of glory would be God coming down to earth and setting the table so that we could have we could have intimacy and fellowship with God. This is what glory is being redefined as in this new covenant. Then look at verse 33. He redefines identity itself when he says, little children. What a powerful word. Little children. It was actually so important that John, who was the writer of this letter, would later, later write an epistle in 1 John. And when he gives the same exact sermon, the same exact sermon to love one another. That's the command that First John says when he writes his letter at the end of his life. He can't help but preach that sermon to the same exact audience as Jesus preached to what? To little children. The, the Pharisees used to say, what do you mean you're, you have, you, you know, what do you mean you, you know our father? Our father is Abraham. And he says, no, when you pray, this is how I want you to start off your prayer. Not our God, not our Lord, not our general, not our master, not our teacher. I, I want you to see God through the eyes of Abba. If you were to go to Israel right now and, and hear the, 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 the children running around the streets and, and talking and screaming out, you would hear that word, Abba, 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 Abba. It was the most intimate, most informal, most comfortable, most intimate way to express connection between God and man. He says, I'm going to call you a child because you are a child being called to a father. He redefines glory. He redefines intimacy. He redefines the titles of identity. And then he says to Peter, the best news that sounds like the worst news to him, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Why? Because following Jesus is not just about following a model to, to copy his life, but it's to receive his life, that he might give righteousness to us, and he can do what we can't do, which is ultimately substitute for us. Not that we just follow him, but we receive his substitution. He says, you can't follow me. Why? Because you can't live a perfect life. Because you can't die for your, for, for your sins and the sins of others. You can die for your sins, but you can't die for the sins of others. I'm the only one that's perfect enough. I'm the only one that's generous enough, that's full enough of God's righteousness that I can come and do what I'm about to do. Peter, you can't go where I'm going, and that's a good thing. And then he says to them the part that maybe they felt the most comfortable. I imagine them kind of getting their notebooks out when he says, I'm going to give you a command now. Oh, yes, commands. This, this is good. This is what I, I'm used to. He says, I'm going to give you a command. He says, it's a simple command. He says, I want you to love one another. The way that they're going to tell that you're my disciples, he brought them up in probably, in my opinion, the most important thing that he says in this whole run of John 13. This is the only thing that I want you to remember. When I go away or you go away to college and I send you off to be where I'm not going and you're going to go and represent me fully off where you're going, I'm not going to have a list of rules for you. I only have one rule, and this is what it is, to love one another. How are we going to be able to tell who a disciple is by the way they love one another? This is what he says. Well, this doesn't sound like a new law, right? This is something that they've been preaching since Deuteronomy, to love, your Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. But then he adds the clause that absolutely revolutionized the whole thing, that inaugurates the new covenant ultimately. He says, you're going to love one another like I have loved you. Jesus redefines glory. He redefines identity. He redefines the actual nature of love. And love is not measured 
so much by action and deed and money or dollar sign. Love, according to Jesus, is measured by motive. Everything he says, everything you do can be measured correctly, not by the 613 laws, but by the one law that I give you, that you would love one another. There's only one law that I give you, that you would love one another, that you would love one another, that we would measure our, our, our lunch, our, our, our working times, our discussions with our spouse by this question. It's, it's the only command you need. You don't need to go to seminary to learn 613 laws. I took on all the laws, and I gave you myself, and I'm enough. This is the one law. I went to, to lunch the other day, and I had a lunch with a client, let's say, and you're in sales. And Jesus would say, don't measure it by what you eat or what you drink or did you pray before the meal or what were you thinking when you, when you had the meal. You only need one law to fulfill the command of Jesus, and that is, did you do it because, you loved, because I loved you? It's the only measurement that we would need. I went to lunch so that I could host my client. Why? The question why is important to undercover motive, you know? Why did you go to lunch to, to appease my client? Why is that? Because our business needs to make money. Why is that? Because I need to make money. Why is that? Because I need to support my family. Why is that? Because my father never did. It only takes a few whys to uncover the real motive. The law was competent to correct the what's and the how's of life, but it didn't speak into the whys. And the law of love, the one law of love above and beyond the 613 is more prolific really than all the other 613 combined because it asks accountable your heart and not only your actions. So he says, I give you one command. This is the law. Love one another. So ultimately, this is, this is my message today in a summation, is that God created law ultimately to draw near to us, but we were incapable of drawing near to him. The law was capable of drawing near God to man, but not to draw close. He was too holy. It took a man to give, to propitiate, to to, to share his bountiful righteousness with us that we might not only draw near, but draw close. And when he invites those disciples into the upper room, he wasn't just inviting them to a meal and a supper. He was inviting them to a hinge of history, to the end of an era, to the death of a way of getting to God. He ended the law. He, he died to himself, but he also died. He also gave death to the law for what the law was not capable of doing. Jesus, in his in his offering of righteousness to us, allows us to boldly go in where, where men were not allowed to go before. Boldly into the presence of God that we want to have oneness and nearness and uninterrupted fellowship with Jesus. So Jesus, in the upper room and on the cross, gave us a license out of the courtroom of God into the living room of God. In the living room of God, though uncomfortable and though uh, kind of backwards and illogical to disciples and to many of us, is the place where actually he can make us more righteous than the Pharisees, where we can actually fulfill 613 laws by way of his spirit, that we would have more fruit and more abounding sustainability because of what he does to us in the living room. And, and so my application point this morning speaks to the reality that we can all sit in the living room but still act like we're in the courtroom. It's quite possible to, to, to say yes to the invitation and sit at Jesus' feet but still live within the paradigm and the context of the law. Because the law, the legalist, it's not just somebody that went to seminary for, for too long. The legalist, the, you know, the law follower, like we can be legalist Pentecostals, we can be legalist 
justice-oriented people. We can be legalists, conservatives. We can be legalists, progressives. We can be legalists, emergents. We can be legal. We can, we can find ways to create laws because legalism is just what happens when Jesus leaves the room and I depend more on my presence than, more on my principles than my presence. I can create laws and run from one ditch to the next as much as I can imagine the next thing that's going to get me to God. This is the nature of legalism. It's, it's not just a person and a character in the Bible, a Pharisee. We all have a pharisaical tendency. So I had this friend when I was in college, and his name was Andrew Cornetta. And I looked up to Andrew, which is a lot to say, because when you're in college uh, and you're a guy, it's not really cool to say you like look up to the guy that's next to you. But he was a pretty cool guy. And uh, Andrew... Andrew was just always with you in the moment, and he was never talking about something other than the moment. He used to just kind of say things, and you would always be kind of caught off guard and surprised by some of the stories he would share. He'd be like, oh, yeah, so-and-so, this homeless guy has just been, like, living on my couch for the last week. And you're like, what? You didn't, like, you didn't, are you scared you call the police? Like, what, what, what are you doing? I remember this one time, somebody stole Andrew's bike. It was like a $1,000 mountain bike. And we were all flustered and freaking out because back then college kids were actually poor. Nowadays, college kids have like three MacBook Pros and who knows what's going on. But back then we were like Poe. And so he had like a $1,000 bike and we were all like so offended for him, right? We were like, Andrew, you need to be like offended about this. Like be mad about this. And, and his only statement was like, well, I hope that he's happy with it. I mean, it's a pretty sweet bike. You know, I, I, hope, that it, I hope that it brings him joy, you know. It was, it was a pretty nice bike, you know. Andrew, like, never judged anybody. He, like, never didn't have any friends. He was, like, friends with our pastor. He, like, hung out with our pastor. I don't really know how that happened. He was, like, friends with, like, the homeless guy down the street. He was, like, f like best friends with this, like, special needs guy that genuinely it wasn't any sort of project. He just made friends with this guy, and he, he never met a stranger, right? He was a person that just made love a really big deal and didn't make himself a big deal. And, and it's people like Andrew, like, people like that, the sides of God that reveal themselves right here and now, those things are like religion killers, you know? Like, here's the thing about it. Like, Oliver, my baby Oliver, if you've known him before, he's, he's a, bit, a little bit older than a year. If you were to bring him up to a line of 50 other guys with me in that lineup, he would be able to pick out his father amidst 50 other guys without a study in Galatians. You know why? Because he knows my presence. He knows what I sound like. He knows what the real thing is. And it's funny how when you taste the real thing, how the counterfeits sort of fall apart. You know, the people that do, like, counterfeit you know, uh, discrepancies when they study fake bills and so forth, you know how they do it? They don't study a million different fakes. They study the real thing. And it's funny that when you, when you witness the love of Christ, how God loved us, Jesus says, this is how you're going to measure yourself by law. The only law you need is love. Well, Jesus, what's the definition of that? My life. Like, once you see my life put on display... In, every, in any given situation, you'll know, you'll be able to detect the decoy and the counterfeit from the real because once you see the real, the counterfeit always reveals itself. Jesus, the presence of Jesus in the relationship of the real thing is the only thing ultimately that can fulfill the law. It's the only thing that can allow us to walk in full fellowship with God and righteousness. Just three quick points that I want to run through here up on the screen and we'll respond. It's in the living room of God. It's in the living room of the real thing. It's in the closeness and the proximity of God, not an ideal, not in a religion, not with a paradigm or a theology, that principle becomes presence. We can make the New Testament epistles a new law. Love Jesus and be kind and be patient and practice hospitality. We, like when I first became a Christian, I loved to get into the epistles. Why? Because they told me how to do things so I didn't have to really think about why I was doing things. 
and we can grace people and truth people. And brother, was that a grace statement or was that a truth statement? If we lined up the things that Jesus said, you couldn't separate truth from grace because grace and truth are a person. They're in Jesus. And Jesus in his leadership of us will look different on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday because he doesn't run on principles. He runs on presence. I love what Carl Lentz said. They interviewed him. What's your position on homosexuality? You know what he said? I don't give positions on homosexuality because I'm not about positions. I'm about people. And I want to get with the individual person and have an individual conversation because the biggest issue isn't homosexuality. It's about people and Jesus. And you can't, you can't preach to that and you can't pastor that through the lens of a paradigm. It has to be through presence. So my question is, if your relationship looks the same on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, five years and ten years from now, are you having a relationship with a person or are you having a relationship with a principal? We'll be always wondering, are we generous enough? Are we judgmental? Was that too much grace? Was that too much truth? Was that a nice way to say that to my kid? The same Jesus that says, come and have an easy yoke is the same one that says, get behind me, Satan, and carry your cross. The same Jesus that says, love and honor your mother and father is the same one that says, hate your mother and father in light of me. Because Jesus is not a principle, he can be a paradox. Because people are paradoxes. And when we have religion, and when we fall in, in, in love with, relate, with principles and paradoxes over presence, we become legalists. It doesn't take a PhD to become a legalist. It just takes somebody who's not close to the relationship with Jesus. Number two, the second principle that happens, I believe, in the living room next to Jesus is that condemnation becomes correction. You know, Jesus corrects us in his love. It says in James that uh, he loves to discipline his children. The discipline is a part of love. And what I found is that when I'm not close to Jesus, anytime somebody comes and corrects me, it always becomes condemnation. It becomes about me, and it always becomes about fear and what I'm about to do to avoid that condemnation, to avoid that shame, to avoid that disconnection. But what is so powerful about the presence of Jesus is that when his correction comes, I always know that it's given in love. I can trust it, and what used to come at me and cause judgment, condemnation, and shame now actually becomes an opportunity for grace, growth, and intimacy with him. So the power of the presence of Jesus is that he takes us out of the paradigms and he actually allows us to grow instead of being stuck in our gutter. Number three, and lastly, being in the living room of Jesus allows discipline to become a joy. Discipline becomes a joy when you're in the presence of Jesus. If you added up all the mothers in here, those that are mothers, all the work and the tiresome hours, they've calculated, right? You're worth like $300,000 to your family every year, right? Counting up all the time and the commitment and things. But why is it that mothers do more for their children than many people do for their CEO? Why is it they go above and beyond? Why? Because they participate in the practice of joy, not discipline and duty. So how is it that a person not under the law actually fulfills the, per fulfills the law better than the person that is under the law? Because they're abided in love. And love always prospers into joy. This is my closing verse for the day, and I'll stand in, in response. But it comes out of Philippians verse uh, 4, verse 12, well-known verse. I know how to be abased. I know how to be in every circumstance, Paul would say. I know how to abound. Everyone in all things I have learned, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer in need. I can do all things. I have joy in all things through what? Through Christ who strengthens me, through the ministry of witness, through his closeness that I can draw near to him and draw close to him. Would you guys stand as we respond this morning? Father, I thank you for being a here God. And God, that we would hasten ourselves away from the very real possibility we could sit in the living room in the presence of God after so much has been paid and so much blood has been spilled and so much travesty has been done to Jesus, the price has been paid that we could sit in the living room in the presence of God but sit under the law and of the yoke of slavery. We could be right in the presence of the one that set us free but still commit ourselves and commend ourselves to the laws and the slavery that you came to free us from. God, it's, 
It's not what we want. It's not what we want. God, I thank you for being enough. I thank you for being real. I thank you that we don't have to add anything or take anything away from what you've done. I thank you that Jesus plus nothing is, is enough. I thank you, God, that you're producing and it's fruit that the law can never do. I thank you that you paid the price and that you created the vehicle and you created the way and you created the truth that we might draw near to you, God. And so what we do right now is we just say yes to this moment knowing that you'll be with us in the next. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own, but we say yes to this moment. And though love might look different to this woman or to this man or to this person in the next moment, we just say yes to your only command you gave us. It's that simple, pure love that we can say yes to. We thank you for your presence. It frees us from stress. It frees us from anxiety of performance, of comparison, of, of judgment and condemnation for others. We thank you for that like yoke, light yoke. We thank you, God, for doing it all, for paying it all, for being enough on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.